welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm honored to be joined this week by Dr. John Cavadini. He is a figure well known to many here at Notre Dame. He is the McGrath Cavadini Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, as well as a professor of theology, a former chair of the Department of Theology, among many other accomplishments here at Notre Dame and beyond. So, Dr. Cavadini, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It's great to have you. We like to start at the beginning of life and your childhood. So where are you from? What were some of your early formative years like? Well, I'm from North Haven, Connecticut, and I grew up in a family of Italian immigrants. Mm -hmm though it was sort of divided because my father's family came from northern Italy and my mother's family came from southern Italy. Okay. And these are really different cultures. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I didn't I didn't know that <laughs> at the time. It was all Italian to you. That's yeah. right. But I I think I had a rather uneventful and maybe uninteresting childhood, <laughs> which I suppose is kind of nice. That's um, right. right. I don't have any traumas to remember, and yeah. I, I just seemed to have... And I remembered growing up in family and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that deposit of faith and your parents and your loved ones giving you that, what were some formative moments where you remember your faith being important to you and your family? My earliest memories of faith formation, I guess, are of my mother teaching me the, the Our Father. That's when I was really little. Mm-hmm. I remember going to mass every Sunday morning at seven with my siblings and my grandparents. My, we stayed at my grandparents Saturday night. Mm-hmm. My parents went out, and so <laughs> we, we went to mass at the first mass, which is seven o'clock, religiously, as it were, sure, sure. with my grandparents. And it's kind of interesting thinking back. I remember, you know, people I admire, just regular people in the parish. I didn't necessarily think I admired that person, but they caught my attention. There was this one woman who always went to communion with her hands folded. Mm -hmm. And I never, it wasn't common that much even Mm -hmm. then, Mm -hmm. but it just left a mark on my imagination Mm -hmm. that someone had that much, I don't know, focus and piety and and love, I guess. And then my grandmother, who took us to Mass, she was old school (laughs) uh, in the sense that she wouldn't go to communion except once a year. Okay. She didn't feel worthy. Yeah. But you know what? That left a mark on my imagination also. It didn't make me feel like I wasn't worthy, but it made me understand there was something worth honoring here Mm -hmm. in some way. So I, I think as I grew older, I lived in my hometown for a long time. I went to college in a place near, nearby. And I remember, I just remember ordinary people, the, the usher, he, he, he owned an auto mechanic shop. He was faithfully there every single Sunday until he was 96. Yeah. yeah. And then he died. But that also, like, it left an impression on me that someone is that faithful without any evident, you know, mystical experience or any kind of thing thing that you read about sometimes in the theological literature. Yeah, he just yeah. was an ordinary guy, had an ordinary job, and he was extraordinarily committed. And so I feel like these are people I have to live up to. Yeah. Well, and honestly, that's part of what this podcast is about, is getting little glimpses of not only some of the people that 
we would look, look up to here at Notre Dame, but also hearing the stories, the ordinary stories of people who inspired them and, and how sometimes when we ask people to be on the podcast, they think, well, I don't really feel worthy to do that. But it's really more about capturing those stories of ordinary holiness that where we kind of support each other corporately. I have to mention one other that came to mind. Yeah. And one of the few Sundays that we actually went to Mass with my parents. <laughs> I forget what the occasion was. My father, of course, always, you know, contributed to the mm. collection. Sure. And I remember one Sunday walking out of Mass and the priest who had served there a long time walked up to him and gave him I, I didn't I, I didn't know what was happening. I figured it out later. He gave him three dollars because my my dad had put five dollars in. Mm-hmm. And the priest said, you know, take this, you have a family. So he allowed him to give two dollars of yeah. the five that he but when I figured out what he had done, I've never forgotten that. Yeah. And it just it was very hidden. It was an extraordinary act of kindness that you couldn't put on a billboard. But it was very it was it left a deep impression on me. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. So you mentioned going to college. What were some of your early educational experiences like, and and where did you end up going to college? I went to a school that had had a religious identity, not a Catholic school, but was no longer religious, and it was indeed a very secular environment. I wasn't used to. I maybe led a sheltered life. I don't know. I wasn't terribly used to what I was seeing in my fellow students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it wasn't a community of faith in any sense. Okay. There was a small Catholic community on campus, however, in the Methodist or formerly Methodist chapel on campus. Mm-hmm. There was 5.30 mass every Sunday, 5.30 p.m. Yeah. And there was, yeah, there was a small group of, of Catholics who gathered, faculty and, and students, and then there was um, there was Wednesday evening mass at 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing like what we do, although it was at 10 p.m. like some yeah. of our liturgies. Right, right. <laughs> um, in the religious studies or the Department of Religion, where I was a major in religion, in their kind of conference room, but it was at a table, and I don't think I would endorse this practice now. But it was you know, sort of we were sitting around this table, and mass was celebrated yeah. with a loaf of bread that had lots of crumbs. It made me nervous. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of person I am, I guess. But you know those those experiences of a sort of a little bit of a more closely knit community of faith in in the context of a place that wasn't particularly friendly mm-hmm. to faith and is even less friendly now than it was then. Mm-hmm. That was formative for me. After a while, I sort of branched out from that. I think when I was a junior, I decided to have a rebellion against the faith and the church. <laughs> and my rebellion was that because you had to go to Mass on Sunday, I wouldn't go. Hmm. But I went to daily Mass instead, hmm. like every single day. <laughs> so much for my rebellion. But, that, <laughs> but it meant something to me somehow to just like do it, a, I don't know, a different way or whatever. But I went to the, there was an Italian parish in town, in Middletown, and the, the church was built with pink marble. It was exact replica of a church that had burned down in Sicily, okay. where a lot of the people had come from. Sure. And so it was kind of nice for me in a sense, because my background was not well represented at, at, the, at the college, but it was in that church. Yeah. And daily mass was, you know, it's a lot lower stakes. Nobody necessarily watches to see if you're going to communion or not. Um, <laughs> and 
Um, and it's generally the same people, and you get to know them, and they kind of were happy to see me, a college student, going to Mass. Mm-hmm. I felt very well, re- very warmly received, and it was, it was beautiful for me. There was a policeman there. Also, when I was a junior and a senior, I can't believe I was this kind of an activist, but I was. We used to picket at the local AMP for the farm workers. Okay. <laughs> this, okay. Po- this policeman would, would always come up to us. He was Italian. He'd say, why are you doing this? And, wh- you know, what's going on? And yeah. So we had a good relationship of conversation back and forth. He'd always come up to us. On our, we, it was a little picket line of three people. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it because Dorothy Day was, you know, I was, I was interested in the Catholic worker, and she said we should be doing this. Um, mm-hmm. So he was one of the guys who went to that parish, and I kind of got to know and we had these conversations across a, across a little bit of a, a political divide, maybe you could say. Uh-huh. But somehow the, the sense that we were both Catholic, both going to Mass, and both cared deeply about the Eucharist, like, made an impression on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, a good message for us today as well. Did you have a sense during your undergraduate years that you wanted to continue on in academia, or how did that come about? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was really kind of clueless. I started out Mm pre-med. No one in my family had completed four years of college. My grandparents, whom I revere, actually, but nevertheless, they they only had an eighth grade education. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I I was pre-med. I got interested in in the religion major and left off being pre-med to be a religion major. But then when I graduated, I thought, now what am I going to do? Like, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had no plans because I didn't know. Honestly, I, I happened to be in the library, and I was looking at the return shelves to see what people had been reading. Mm-hmm. And I pulled a book off the return shelf totally at random, and it happened to be, I opened it, it happened to be Gregor of Nyssa. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I started reading it, and I realized, wow, this is kind of philosophical, sort of, and, but it's also biblical. And it had a combination that, uh, that just attracted me. And I thought, gee, I'd like to study that if I ever go on any farther. So what I did during that year, I took the year off. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't go home because I, I decided I should try to complete my pre-med requirements. Okay. And I had no place to live at first. I, I, the place that I was, had been living as a senior was a um, former frat house. Had this big library with this huge table in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So I always slept under the table. <laughs> I know it's silly to remember this, but for about a month and a half until the cleaning until the, the cleaning staff noticed me there, and she was like, "What are you doing there?" I said, "Well, um, I don't know. I'm just here." <laughs> so that I had to move. Yeah. I had to find some other place, and I I asked the housing office there, the director of, of whom was Catholic actually and a former seminarian, if there was any place I could live on campus, like in the tunnels or something. <laughs> Because there were tunnels between all the residence halls, right. so he like took pity on me and and said that um, yeah we have a, we have a, you 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 could stay in one of the rooms off of one of the tunnels which I don't know what it was a utility room but it was it was good enough you know to sleep in <laughs> and to have books and whatever and so this is another these are things I remember because that guy was nice to me right like he could have said what's your problem John you're mentally disturbed or something yeah. you should yeah. be but he didn't mm-hmm. um, eventually I found another place to live but. Um, it was kind of scary down there in the middle of the night. <laughs> but like in February, this is probably way more than you wanted to know, sorry. That's great. In February, 
I decided, well, what am I going to do next year? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I, if I'm going to like even think of going on in theology, I have to apply to graduate school. Yeah. And so I found a catalog. I, I looked through all the catalogs. There was no computers then. Sure. And there was only one school whose deadline hadn't passed. Mm. Um, this I tell my students, like, do not do it this way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it was Marquette. And um, I applied and I got in. Yeah. And so I decided to start, you know, my master's degree in theology at Marquette. And during that time, I also applied to medical school. Okay. And I got in. Hmm. I was astonished. Um, <laughs> I got into one place and was waitlisted at another. But then I decided I wanted to finish my master's degree. So I asked if they could defer the admissions. Mm -hmm. So they did, which was nice. Mm -hmm. But when I finished, I thought, you know what? I really like to try to get a, like a doctorate. I would like to try to teach. So I told them I wasn't coming. Like mm -hmm. I just held my breath and said, I'm not coming. But the story is a little bit funny. I don't know if I should tell it even, but <laughs> so I, 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 I told them I wasn't coming, but I was rejected. <laughs> I had a flight to Yale. It's my hometown. And it had the, the guy, the person that I wanted to study with. My, um, my advisor turned out to be Yaroslav Pelikan, you know, really well known as a scholar of the early church, um, Greg of Nyssa and everybody. Mm -hmm. But I didn't get in. That was awkward. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I was telling my mother this, you know, who's living who's from New Haven, like yeah. my, that's where they started out. And then yeah. they moved to North Haven where right. I grew up. So I told my mother, I wasn't like, I was just telling her, I was disappointed. So like three days later, my mother calls me. You know, my mother, remember, is um, only has a high school education. She doesn't know what college is or whatever. So she called me and she said um, that she told me that she had called Yale. I said, what do you mean you called Yale? <laughs> she said, yeah, I called them. And I said, you know, I want to know why my son didn't get in. Mm -hmm. And... They said, well, you're, we don't know why your son didn't get in. So they, they referred her to the what was at that time called the registrar of the Department of Religious Studies. And she was kind enough to take the call. And my mother said, you know, I, I just my son is smart. I just wonder why he didn't get in. Mm -hmm. And she was saying back, well, it's, it's true. A lot of smart people do apply here, but we just can't take all of them. Right. And so we weren't able to. And my mother interrupted her as she told the story to me. She said, no, that isn't why. It's because we're from New Haven. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> because there were terrible relations at the time between oh, Yale and New Haven. Okay. And I thought, Ma, you didn't say that. <laughs> but because she said that, the registrar said, well, Mrs. Cavadini, I'll, I'll look into it. And she did. And she called me, the registrar did, uh -huh, uh -huh. to say, well, actually, the folder with all your credentials in it came from over from the graduate school with nothing in it. It was just an empty folder. Oh, wow. And so you were just rejected out of hand. Huh. But we've, they've reconsidered and we'll accept you. Wow. And you know what? If my mother hadn't called, I mean, I was so embarrassed that she did. This is the stu stupid person that I am. But if she hadn't done that. I wouldn't have gone to graduate school. I wouldn't have finished my PhD hmm. because I wouldn't have gotten in the place I wanted to get in. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, they'd run out of money to give out as financial aid, so I had to wait a year, and during which time I, I lived at home and studied classical languages. But that's how I got in to Yale. Yeah. So I, I remember that too. Like, that's an act of kindness, that my mother was so, like, just, she believed in me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know she did. Of course, you know, ever after, she always told me, well, you're not the right kind of doctor. <laughs> and I would say, well, thanks, Ma. I, I love you, too. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have a son now who is the right kind of doctor, so I think she was happy, would have been happy about that if she That's knew good. it. That's good. 
So once you were in, thanks to your mom's help, what were some of the things that you studied or what did you focus on once you got to your doctoral studies? Well, what I hoped to study and what I did study was what we what was called patristics or still is called patristics mm-hmm. or early Christian theology. It's also true that I got married during this time. So I met my wife at Marquette. Okay. And we got married four weeks before I started the PhD. Then we had our first baby about a year later. Mm-hmm. And I was admitted to Yale with tuition, but I didn't have a living stipend because mm-hmm. I was like the the fourth of the four people admitted in the area that I was admitted in. Yeah. So I had to work. And I did get a job working for the town of North Haven as a garbage collector. Mm-hmm. And I had that job for five years. It was a really handy job for this kind of work because for this to be a PhD student at the same time because the hours were such that I could do that job and then go to school. For the last three years, I was president of the union, which was a union that extended to not just the sanitation workers, but to the landfill, to the park department, to the um, streets and roads. It was a pretty large union. Yeah. Anyway, so I was the, the president of that. I was elected president at a meeting that I didn't attend. Um, <laughs> and seriously. Wow. Um, so I wasn't even interested. I didn't even. But they figured I have an education, and so maybe I could help. One thing I learned there is an education is not enough. Mm. Like, you can be educated and know how to interpret things and how to. But you, but you also have to have some kind of reserve of sense, of empathy, of I don't know, I have to say maybe charity, because a lot of the human problems that arose on that job mm-hmm. that I was called to figure out how to figure out mm-hmm. were, were resistant to just education. Like if you said, well, I'm, you would never say it this way, but if you thought, well, I'm smart, I've, I know how to you know, think, I can fix this problem. Mm-hmm. Guess what? A lot of these problems were very poignant, very, they involved deep conflict or trauma and you couldn't solve them just because you were so-called smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that experience never left me. Mm-hmm. And it also influenced the choice of you know, what I wanted to study in terms of where I wanted to focus my attention. In the early church, gravitated me towards St. Augustine, who has a very beautiful sense of the fragility of human life and in, in a way the difficulty of it, the sort of kind of pastoral approach you need to adopt if mm-hmm. you're going to get anywhere with people mm-hmm. um, who aren't just clear and distinct ideas walking around. Mm-hmm. You know, there. So it took me a long time to finish, and I got discouraged mm-hmm. at a certain point sure. when I had three kids, yeah. and, I, and I wasn't done. <laughs> right. um, and I thought, I'm never going to graduate. I'm never going to get a job. And if I get a job, it's not going to pay me anything. Hmm. So I reapplied to medical school, hmm. and I didn't get in. But undaunted, I applied again <laughs> the next year. And I did get in, and then I had to decide once and for all what I wanted to do with my life. So I just held my breath again and turned them down. Mm. I'm sure there's like some kind of trip wire that if I were ever on that campus, like (laughs) I would trip it and they would blow me up or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I decided what, like, what are my gifts and what do I owe my family? And Mm -hmm. and I thought the only way I can make this decision is by thinking about what would I miss more. I would miss being a doctor. Like, I did have ideas that I could, you know, make a really good living, but also run a clinic for people who 
couldn't afford health insurance or something like that. And mm-hmm. but I also thought, but I have the, I sort of have the gift. And if I don't recognize it, it's not being humble. I have the gift of being able to find the riches of the Christian tradition. People don't even know they're there, mm-hmm. and you know, draw on them, bring them forth, and repropose them in a way that that might grab appeal to people's hearts and grab their attention. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'll miss doing that more. Mm. And so I did just hold my breath and say, I'm not coming. <laughs> By that time, I was closer to being done anyway, and I felt a little bit better about it. Mm-hmm. So that's how I decided to do the whole time of graduate school to, to stay in it and mm-hmm. to, to, um, and to finish. Well, and of course, being married and children, I mean, discernment changes when you've made commitments and, and chosen a primary vocation in that way to married life. Can you talk about some things you learned about yourself in marriage and fatherhood that helped contribute to the whole person of, of who you were becoming? Well, I guess I'd say a few things. One is that I decided what I owed to my kids was myself mm-hmm. in the first instance. And and if I if I was thinking simply about how much money I was going to make, now you have to worry about that. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But if I'm thinking only about that, but I'm not thinking about, I don't know, making use of the gifts that I have that I know are from the Lord, otherwise I wouldn't have them, and to fold that in to being a dad. And so that that's one thing. I suppose another thing is I don't know having children. I it was the most awesome thing that ever happened to me. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to explain it. All of a sudden there's this person that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know how they got there in one way. <laughs> but in another way like where did this dot of consciousness come from like yeah. it didn't exist before and all of a sudden it's there it was astonishing and it moved me and it never got old i had seven kids but mm-hmm. it wasn't like by the seventh one i was like oh whatever <laughs> <laughs> it was the same thing yeah. every single and so i this sort of attitude of wonder it it affected everything i did intellectually and theologically and also the fact that it's it's also very difficult to be a dad, like mm-hmm. if you really pay attention and all the stuff that happens and is but but it's like nobody sees it. Mm-hmm. You can't brag about it. You mm-hmm. can't like say, well, I, I, I did all these things like I, <laughs> I, I, I changed these diapers or whatever, which I hated, by the way. Um, I, I never got used to that. I like I. I stayed up the, all, like all this time, yeah. but it's all hidden, and you can't complain because every other dad will say, "Well, I did the same thing." So mm-hmm. it's yeah. not like so. There's a certain kind of way in which you start to realize that you don't become holy by by having everybody watch what you do mm-hmm. and by bragging about it or even complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but somehow it's 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 a thing that's hidden. It's between you and the Lord, and yeah. I mean, of course, your wife, but. Sure. Even there, you don't want to complain to her all the time about stuff because yeah. that's... <laughs> she could tell you stories as right, well. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think this attitude of wonder that just never, never, has never left me, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. combined with the way in which, I don't know, striving for holiness, if you want to put it that way. I'm not sure that I ever put it so to myself. But anyway, it's just so mundane and so unglamorous 
And there's not like mystical consolations raining down on right. you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like when you go to Holy Communion, it's not like now you're going to have this great moment of like mystical elevation or something. Mm-hmm. Most of the time I was at Mass with two kids in the back standing. But I also was so grateful to be at Mass. I was glad in the back. I was in the back because it moved me to be there. I was just super grateful to be at Mass and able to receive communion and have my kids. I don't know, that also feeling of gratitude really was very formative somehow and hasn't left me. Well, it's such an important point because you mentioned, you know, hearing like the stories of the saints or these mystical experiences. Well, those are the things that make it into the books or the the movies or the stories that are passed on. But the regular, ordinary stuff of, I loaded the dishwasher again today. <laughs> I, I, you know, I pulled the, the socks and matched them all out of the dryer. <laughs> that, none of that stuff, it's like, well, who, who would care about this? But it's actually the fidelity to those things that help establish the foundation for some of sometimes these mystical experiences do happen we we do believe in those things but i think for a lot of people who are hearing this they i'm certainly nodding my head like yeah that is it's very ordinary at times but the the length of time that you stay committed to those the vows that you've made and and those promises that builds that builds holiness slowly and also i think you know we can read the accounts of the saints and assume we know what a mystical experience is so but what is a mystical experience mm-hmm. and i think you know let's say it's also hard to be married it's beautiful yep. <laughs> but it's very difficult sure um it's it's a challenge always but if you're faithful i don't know like let's say 35 years later, it, it, may, it may occur to you in a moment that somebody's been faithful to you for 35 years and you don't deserve that. But there's also, therefore, a kind of bond that you get a glimpse of fleeting because if you look at it too caref- too closely, it kind of goes away. But I don't know. It's there. And you realize there's a bond there that's, that's deeper than I like you or it's deeper <laughs> even than I love you. Of course, yeah. that's there. But sure. it's like to become aware of that for one golden moment seems like that's a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. But it's not cast in any – there's no dazzling lights or it's not cast in the way that you're inclined you, – you're sort of led to believe that these things happen. Yeah. But to be aware of a bond which you're part of but which – you actually don't deserve to have in a way mm-hmm. is to be aware of something so enduring and so beautiful that you you can't really stare at it for very long because if you do you start thinking why well, I do deserve it or something like yeah. it's so this moment but they're few and far between but they're there so I don't know if that counts well and it reminds me of a story I had the chance to travel to the Holy Land a couple of years ago and we went to Cana and of course there was a chapel there and I wasn't with my wife but a lot of the couples were there who had been married 35 40 50 years and they renewed their wedding vows in the church there at Cana and it just struck me you could see in their eyes there were so many stories there that only they knew and I didn't but what they had with God's grace built together and it was this kind of mystical experience that they were celebrating and marveling that I can't believe that we're here and and that we still are committed to this. It was a really beautiful, beautiful thing to witness. Wow. Well, returning to your academic life, 
once you did finish the PhD and started to get into professional academia, what were some of the early early experiences there? Well, I started teaching before I finished my degree, which is not recommended, but I did. Um, <laughs> I had a great job for that first year at Loyal in Maryland, but I moved on from there to Villanova, where I had three great years. But then all of a sudden, I got a phone call out of the blue from Father Father McBrien, Dick McBrien, mm-hmm. who's, who was from my archdiocese of Hartford. I see. And he said to me, John, how would you like to work at the University of Notre Dame? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I've never actually thought about it. Because Notre Dame at that time wasn't such a thing on the East Coast. Like, yeah. we didn't really think about that or I don't know. So I said, I, I, pre- I mean, I don't have, yeah, I'd love to think about it. So he invited me for an interview. So I, I came out, I interviewed I actually, at that moment, fell in love with with Notre Dame, with this place, because it's the first Catholic place I'd been at that actually felt like a university, like it reminded me of Yale. Mm. I also noticed from the posters up that there was a very large spectrum of Catholic opinion here, Mm. which I was glad of. It wasn't, at the time, the Department of Theology had a very liberal reputation, really a dissenting reputation, you could Mm. say, not Mm -hmm. just liberal. But um. But then I noticed there's lots of other stuff on campus. So I, I thought, wow, a, a real university just tolerates this range of, does tolerate this range of opinion and discussion. So just from being here, I thought, yeah, I really do want to work here. Mm-hmm. And I hope I get the job. <laughs> <laughs> I did get the job, though um, I was informed by the powers that be that I hadn't interviewed very well. Um, it was one of the worst ones they ever heard. <laughs> 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 the lecture I gave, <laughs> and um, they thought that maybe I wouldn't be a very good teacher, and but the Q and A saved me. I don't know; it wasn't very promising, but I did get the job. <laughs> I also found out that I was like the fourth person they had interviewed. <laughs> that other people had turned it down, <laughs> so I was not the top pick. But that's okay; I got the job. And right. I always tell my students, "Look, you don't have to be the top pick; you just have to get the job." Right, right. <laughs> So that was a, an experience that, I mean, I'm I'm putting it in a sort of humorous mode. They weren't mean to me. I don't mean that. Sure, they were, yeah. But looking back on it, you can right, just realize. Right like, oh. <laughs> I remember it during the job interview. It was, it was in DeBartolo, and one of those, um, which was just brand new, and one of those blackboards, you know, that goes up and down, uh-huh. like it rattled while right. I was writing on it. And yeah. now when I use that blackboard, <laughs> like 32 years later, I remember how it rattled yeah. <laughs> and made me nervous during my job talk. But I just, I just loved it here when I started. Um, I I loved the students. I loved teaching the required theology classes because, like, my whole idea of myself was to be able to find, you know, for them who didn't don't know these like the riches of the tradition mm-hmm. and to bring them forward and you know, propose them in a way that was attractive and a way that would make them look again and mm-hmm. think about it more deeply. And I just loved doing it. And I think, you know, they liked my classes well enough. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I started, you know, teaching Ph.D. seminars. Now, there were, you know, very distinguished people around me teaching Ph.D. seminars. And mm-hmm. I thought, wow, the students are going to feel chipped. They're just getting like little old me, mm-hmm. like who's just chump change or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, well, shut up, John. Like, <laughs> you have you and you have to give you. That's what you have to give yeah. and not worrying about what other people have to give. Yeah. And actually, I was closer in age to most of the doctoral students. And that also was a 
it was a help, I guess you could say, in terms of helping them think about how to form a career and how to, you know, where to go from here besides the subject matter. So I have never had a moment since then where I didn't love being here, mm. even though I've had job offers to go somewhere else. I had a particularly spectacular one a while back. I'm not going to talk about it, but um, mm. I did, I don't know, love the Notre Dame. Mm. That's me. Because I, I felt like the place stood for something. And there are not that many universities that, that stand for something. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of us who have committed a portion of our life here definitely can identify with that. You've taught a lot of students over the course of your time here. What have been some of those riches of faith that you've tried to convey to them, and how have you done so? Teaching a lot of students. I'll, I'll comment on that first. Yeah, I have. And now I'm getting students who tell me, my dad told me to take this class <laughs> because he had taken it. Right, right. Um, and I thought, hmm, your dad? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I've taught a lot of students and now they're kids even. But more and more what stood out to me, I suppose, maybe I'll say two things. One of them is students come here and they increasingly come here actually not really knowing the Catholic faith, not really knowing what the church teaches. They come here with a lot of caricatures in their head about Mm -hmm. what the church teaches Mm -hmm. or misconceptions or trivializations or defacements and effacements, really, of Mm -hmm. what the church teaches. Mm -hmm. And I, um, about 12 years ago, I started teaching this class called the Catholic faith. And I tried to teach it at a time where people, where students would pick it just for the time, like not for me. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have to do this requirement, whatever. Okay, this is a good time to do it. I, I, I conceived of this method where I, I, we just go through the catechism and a lot of primary source readings, um, not the whole thing, but to try to disambiguate, you know, what the church actually teaches mm-hmm. from what they, I know they think the church teaches, but to draw those riches forward to start realizing that all the mysteries of the faith, which are enshrined in Christian doctrine, these are mysteries of love, mysteries of the deepest love there, there ever could be and ever was and ever will be. God's love bending down in Jesus Christ to us and, you know, giving his blood for us like that. All the mysteries of the Catholic faith emanate from that one big mystery. Mm. And when students like see that, it's sort of like you don't need to create another apologetics for love. When they when you help someone encounter love, love is its own defense, you might say. Mm. And that's been very it's been very beautiful to teach this class, which sometimes attracts two hundred and fifty students, to get people, you know, afterwards saying, Why didn't anybody tell us these things? or I've gone back to mass or I've gone back to, you know, I've come back to church or I've, I'm really rethinking this. Like mm. that, those moments, that's my performance review as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that I don't totally care what the university thinks about me. Of course I care. But, sure. but my performance review is, are those stories that students tell me. And to be able to be part of that, it's just like, it's a huge, awesome privilege because what having kids taught me is that, these people sitting in my classroom are somebody's kids. Yeah. Like, and they care about them as much as I care about my kids. And so my job as a teacher here is to care about them as, as though they were my own kids. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing I'll say. And I, I'll also say the following. I think the, the mystery of the faith that's most misunderstood 
not just by undergraduates here, but I think maybe even by most Catholics, is the mystery of the church. Mm-hmm. And I try to spend more time on it because in some ways, well, the church isn't all that lovable on the surface. Mm-hmm. There's scandals in it. There are people who don't seem dramatically holy. There are divisions and polarities. And students, I think, tend to reduce the church to less than the sum of its arguments. <laughs> and they don't see a reason to love the church. And I think a lot of times in our own hearts, we have to examine, do we actually see the reason to love the church? So to bring forward the mystery that the church is not something we create. We don't just get decide to get together and do some holy things. The church is held together by the blood of Christ, mm-hmm. by the passion of Christ, by the which is you know, mediated to us in the Eucharist. So the Eucharist makes the church. We don't. And so to encounter the church is to encounter a sacrament of that love in this world, um, of that love which bent down and poured itself out on the cross, poured himself out on the cross. It's not impersonal. And to, the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side symbolizes, because water symbolizes baptism and the blood symbolizes the Eucharist, Therefore, they symbolize the church together. The church comes forth from the side of Christ, hanging dead on the cross, and mean it coming forth from his love, mediated to us in the sacrament. And that's so, therefore, the church is a mystery of that love. I'm not doing it very well now, but you know, for students to find out, it's not just like the reason to love the church is not necessarily. Even, even, even that there are a lot of virtuous people in it, yeah. but that it's an act of Christ's love continuing on in this world, and that it's 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 almost like a moment of conversion, right, to begin to love the church, yeah, for the churches, for the mystery that the church is, and you see, you know, once you once you, once you encounter these kinds of the, these kinds of reasons to love the church or mm-hmm. to love the Catholic faith, you know, it's kind of like a, a place above where you can. You know, there's arguments, yes, but you're not going to leave the church because of those arguments, mm-hmm. you're, because you found something precious, you found a love, and you found something you, you just, you're you not willing to give up. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. Thank you. You were appointed to a Vatican role uh, with Pope Benedict. Can you describe what that was and what you learned about the church in your time in Rome and, and serving in that appointment? Sure. I was appointed to the International Theological Commission for a five-year term. That's That commission has 30, always only 30, theologians. You're appointed by the Pope directly, although I'm sure he didn't go around shuffling around CVs to see <laughs> who should be appointed. I think actually Bishop Darcy, Darcy recommended me um, at the time. So you're appointed for five years, and that the commission is actually reports to the to the center of the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Mm-hmm. And the point is, they come up with three issues they'd like clarified mm-hmm. theologically. And the commission gets divided into three subcommittees of 10 each. Um, and you're assigned one of these problems and you work together to produce a document that hopefully affords some sort of theological insight on these issues. So, yeah, I went to Rome twice a year in December and May, once for the plenary, once for our subcommission. Uh, you stay in the Casa Sancta Martha. The memories I have, I have a lot of them, but one of them is, well, if you have, you know, the key to that, the Casa, gets you into St. Peter's. Hmm. Not that there's a 
that you turn it, but there's a back door to St. Peter's. Yeah. You don't have to stand in line. You just go there, show the key, and they let you in. Okay. Um, and then you're thinking, wow, there's going to be like a some sort of antechamber. But as soon as the door opens, it's like, whoa, it's the whole St. <laughs> Peter's right yeah. there. Yeah. And I got to love going there every day during the break. There were two-hour breaks for lunch. The, the, the side, not really a side chapel, but the 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 side area where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved, not exposed, but in the tabernacle. Mm. It's dedicated to St. Joseph. Mm. And so I love St. Joseph. And I, I spent a lot of time there praying. It's, it's the only place in the, in the, in the Basilica with, with, with pews mm. facing the tabernacle. And it's a little bit cordoned off. Not that you can't go in there, but they don't want you talking or taking pictures in there. Sure. But just the opportunity to be there. And then because I'm so insufferable to be pious, like sometimes for, you know, before dinner, there was a space, so I'd go to the, the little chapel in um, in the Domus. And one of those evenings, who should show up but Pope Francis? Mm. Because my the last year that I was on it, he was a pope. Okay. And so I thought, man, it's the pope. Like <laughs> <laughs> He came in, and he sat like in the pew in front of me. And I thought, well, I'm staying here as long as he's staying here. Um, and he stayed for 30 minutes, and so I did. And it didn't seem like, it seemed like a moment of communion, but not the schmoozing kind of communion. Sure. So I didn't say hi or, hey, guess what? I'm on the theological <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. I thought, that's not what this is about, John. Like, shut your mouth. And after he left, then I left. But that moment of the fact that he came down to that chapel mm. where anybody in the building could be or go, um, and it happened to be me, um, insufferably pious, who, <laughs> who had to, for some reason... Although I had been in the Basilica, go again to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, um, then he showed up. And it was a really beautiful moment. Mm. I also remember there were, I mean, I was only one of three lay people out of 30. Mm. So it's, it's a little bit of an experience, I suppose you could, could maybe say, of, of clericalism. Mm-hmm. Um, though everyone was nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that. They weren't. But you sort of get the feeling that you're not somebody who can advance anybody's careers here and they can't really advance yours because you're not in that. And yet there was a, all kinds of courtesies extended to me and I, and I started thinking, well, I, f- I was tempted to think, well, what I say doesn't matter, but actually that wasn't true. What I said mattered. They listened. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm just going to be me. Okay. So I'm the only way that you're going to mitigate clericalism, I suppose, is that you just be you. And as a layperson, and not also not blame anybody for being clerical because mm. you don't even necessarily realize it. Mm. There wasn't any unkindness, and I don't want to be, conf- but it's just that you, you tend to be a little bit invisible. Sure. But at the same time, my contributions were valued and I felt respected. And so I was glad I did it for five years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure your contributions were a gift to the commission and to the church. You've been a gift to our Department of Theology as well. What were some of your experiences being chair, and what is it like to be a chair of a Department of Theology at a place like Notre Dame? Well, I'm going to only speak for myself. I was chair for 13 years. I felt that as, even though you're in some sense only a department chair, which is maybe the the elementary level or the basic level of mm-hmm. maybe administration, I also always felt that it was a job that transcended its its seeming stature. Sure. 
the theology department here stands for something, means something. People look to it, just like they look to Notre Dame. So people from outside the university, especially U.S. Catholics, I think, look to Notre Dame as something special, as something that's as a place that stands for something. And I think the theology department is a microcosm of it. So people look at our department as something that stands for something. And increasingly, I tried to live up to that. I tried to create the department by hiring, et cetera, that would be to, to be worthy of that trust mm-hmm. that the Catholics in this country place in us. And that meant trying to be, at the same time, more and more scholarly, more and more academically, you could say sophisticated maybe, and more and more Catholic, Mm -hmm. more and more deeply connected to the wellsprings of Christian wisdom. And the two things go together Mm -hmm. because how do you, how do you represent or bear witness in an intellectual way to the riches of the Christian tradition, to the riches of Christian faith in a way, yeah, so you have to think very deeply in order to propose it in a largely secular world. But also, you have to think that deeply if you want to propose it to your students, mm-hmm. all the students, from first-year students to PhD students. It's one educational fabric. Search for truth, faith-seeking understanding, so that in a sense, I felt as theology chair, I was a face of the university to the world. And I was a face of the university to the church. And in some ways, I was a face of the church to our students mm. in a particular way, though I'm not ordained. And it was, yeah, an enormous privilege. And it was an unforgettable 13 years. Though 13 years, like, it was time. Like, I <laughs> can't do this forever. Yeah. But I just felt this deep, deep commitment to our students, first of all, to, I mean, it's the same theme that I've started out with, to reap, to find, to make available the riches of the tradition that they would never have seen before and to propose them in a way that is attractive, but also for our PhD students to help them do that for their students eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, I can say as a graduate student during part of your time in the department, it was a real gift to me. Just the, the all the professors and the intellectual rigor, but also the depth of faith that I found. It was it was so formative to me. Thank um, you. So well, and thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It, it marked my life in a in a really significant way. It was a gift to me. Um, the McGrath Institute, though, has also been a gift to so many in the church in a lot of ways. Can you talk about? what the mission of the McGrath Institute is and what some of your involvement has meant to it. Sure. Not sure how much I should go into this, but, well, Father Hesburgh established mm-hmm. the Institute for Church Life, which right. was at the time he established it, it had a different name. It was called the Institute for Pastoral and Social Ministry. And he, I remember um, reading what he said about it. He said he hoped that when the histories of the universities are written, you know, there would be somewhere in those archives a few pages devoted to one university who, who tried to give back to the church out of which she emerged, something like that. Yeah. And at the time that I was, I was appointed director I remember there was a search. I was on the search committee. Um, the search it offered the job to someone. Um, but that person eventually turned the job down. 
because there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of there there mm. by that time. Mm-hmm. A lot of what Father Hesburgh had put in place had, for different reasons, atrophied. So Nathan Hatch, who was provost, asked me if I would do it. And he said, John, you really don't even ever have to go to the office. Like, you, you could, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny remembering back. Um, he said, but, you know, we don't want this to die. And you can run it out of the theology office. I was still chair of the department. Uh-huh. So I, I said, okay. Because Father Hesburgh started it. And I thought, I'm not going to let it die. I want to figure out what his vision was, what was in his heart, and what, was his, what, what were his dreams. So I began to rebuild it. The mission is really, as I see it, to make the, the resources of the university available to church leaders or potential church leaders. And by church leaders, I mean everybody from the bishops to high school students, you know, whom we bring to campus for Notre Dame Vision because mm-hmm. they're potential church leaders. Right. Like, like, how do we renew, nurture, grow leadership in the church? You have to work at all these different levels. And... When I say outreach from the university, I mean really from the university. Like, so it's not stuff that a diocese could do on its own. Like, I don't want to have programming that, that a diocese could do. I want to have programming that makes use of the specific charism of a university, which is education and research. And to, in all different ways, make that available for forming church leaders for continuing formation. We have programs for bishops. We have continuing formation for priests. We have continuing formation for lay ecclesial ministers. We have training for catechetical leaders, ECHO. We work with our high, high school students. That's ND Vision, um, a really beloved program. Uh, we have stuff for alums and others, Saturdays with the Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's into our 12th season. Like the whole idea is to, there too, like, there's so many beautiful things in the Catholic tradition, like so many riches, so many things that appeal to the imagination, like recapture them, you know, and make them available for ordinary church life, for the life of the parish. We're very invested in local church cultures. We say it's not our job to replace them or make them dependent on us. It's our job to build, help them build themselves mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And so to to enrich the the life of the church, primarily by enriching the leadership with with all the wealth there is there, and therefore help them see farther. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a thumbnail sketch. Yeah, well, and there's some real pillars of the McGrath Institute that have become really cultural pillars in the faith conversation here at Notre Dame. You talked about the Indivision program, which has come up a lot on the podcast, previous participants and leaders in that, the ECHO program, a lot of, a lot of folks in that. So, I mean, I think it really is now, as I see it, you are closer to probably Father Hesburgh's vision than certainly many years ago. I have to tell you something. It's very moving to me. One one day I decided that, at, this was probably, I don't know, seven years ago, I decided to just take all the staff over and visit Father Hesper. Of course, I made an appointment. But he enjoyed meeting all the young people um, who work for me. And, I mean, I have super good people. I don't know where they came from, out of heaven, I think, um, <laughs> or why they put up with me. But after they all left, Father Hesburgh, like, you know, motioned to me to stay behind for a second, so I did. And he said, John, I want you to know you made my dreams come true. Hmm. I will never, ever forget that. And it's a moment I cling to 
when I'm discouraged about things, which happens once in a while. But we're always also trying to develop new programming. We now have a program called Fiat, which is intended to help, again, leaders in the church, pastoral leaders, deal with mental illness. Mm. Like the church doesn't really have a a great bedside manner, you might say, (laughs) when it comes to families who have this are, are coping with this problem or individuals who are coping with this problem. This big range of stuff like. What do priests say when someone has committed suicide at the funeral? Like, mm. priests don't know what to say. Yeah. But let's hope it doesn't get to that. But, sure. but the point is, I think if the church could have a more effective outreach, so this program, FIAT, is intended to, little by little, build programming, build resources for pastors and pastoral workers to be able to deploy in ministry. Mm. Wow. What a what a timely and, and helpful resource. I'm excited to see where that where that goes. Well, we're getting close to the end here, but I do want to return to holiness. We've definitely touched upon it as we've talked throughout. Who are some of the models of holiness for you that at this point in your life now that you really cling to and and look up to still? Well, I'll say a few things. I have to say that the memories of my grandparents, God rest their souls, you know, come back to me from time to time. And you know, sometimes I think, well, whatever, I'm educated and I've surpassed them. And, you know, I'm, but, you know, when I really sit down and think about it, I think I'm not one tenth of them, not one fifteenth of them. Like they, I don't know, they had to find a home and a new culture. They had to, then life was hard. They lived through the depression. The absolute, resolute commitment, the faith that they had, I don't think I'll ever. Hmm. And it wasn't glamorous, right? It wasn't. My grandmother, one of them, she was she was she was chairwoman of the Ladies' Garment Workers Union yeah. just after the war. <laughs> um, she sang in the choir at mass. She went every single Sunday without fail. Same with my other grandmother that we went to mass with, and my grandfathers were more distant as maybe men were at that time, but they were absolutely you know they were believers, and mm-hmm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make it to their stature. There's also you know, my favorite saint is St. Joseph. Um, St. Joseph's my favorite saint. Why? Partly because if you think about it, St. Joseph, who says nothing in the Bible, mm-hmm. it's just he's the saint who can't give an account of who he is to anybody. Mm-hmm. He can't go around saying, see that kid there? <laughs> That's the son of God. <laughs> and by the way, my wife. <laughs> he can't go around saying this because he's been charged, you know, by the Heavenly Father with keeping secrets. Mm. We're keeping secret the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the virginal conception of Jesus um, and all these things until the hour has come, right? When Jesus' hour has come, then he embarks on his public ministry and then the devil you know, knows that it's potentially his hour too. Mm-hmm. Now is my hour of come, now is the hour of when, when the, the triumph of the evil one or so it seems, but it wasn't. Um, but the point is, St. Joseph was was the one who, who you could say that Mary gave, you know, became, gave Jesus flesh, but St. Joseph gave him a childhood mm. you know, because he sheltered him from the evil one. This is what Origen says and others in the tradition. But it's not just because he was there and he made it look like a normal family, right? It's because, it's, it's because he did not ever try to brag about who he was, mm. to, say, to say who he was. Mm-hmm. So... To be able never to say who you are to anybody, to give an account of your own identity or self, 
that's like a whole burnt offering. That's like a holocaust. So on his side, it's kind of like, you might say it feels like self-annihilation, but that on the side of Jesus is paternal warmth, paternal charity. Jesus, you know, ex- therefore experiences a childhood full of paternal love and maternal love, of course, mm-hmm. until his hour has come. And I think of that, you know, paternity of St. Joseph, which is really, you know, the other side of his self, you know, whole burnt offering as kind of Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility kind mm-hmm. of that he, that he provides around the Holy Family yeah. um, so that the devil can't see. Why? Because the devil doesn't believe in love. He just doesn't see through it because he doesn't believe it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe love exists. Mm-hmm. And so to have that love envelop the family. And then I think, well, that's in a sense, he's the patron saint of dads because that's what ordinary dads do. It's not you can't brag about what you're doing because everyone else will, will say, well, come on, buddy. What kind of claim on holiness do you have? Yeah. But that, that's the hiddenness, right? It's like participating in the charism of St. Joseph in the sense that you don't give an account of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that that willingness to, to be hidden, that's the seed of holiness mm-hmm. because holiness needs protection. And so the, the fact that it looks so ordinary is like a, a like a like a shell like an egg shell protecting what's the holiness that could develop inside that mm-hmm. were it visible or were it tried to give an account of itself it would disappear mm-hmm. so i'm very and, and and you know it says in one colossians for you have died and your life is hid with christ and god so the christian life is the hidden life mm-hmm. it's not just religious life that's the hidden life the christian life is and saint joseph seems to me the saint of that that aspect of christian life it's hiddenness I just love him, and he's my, you might say, model of holiness and inspiration mm-hmm. par excellence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, there's the other saints, too. I mean, and I don't want to, like, shortchange the Blessed Mother <laughs> or whatever, but... No, I think that it speaks so much to your experience. I mean, you talked about fatherhood and, and what it means to be a father in this in this modern and changing world, and uh, yeah, there's there's challenges there, and I, and I do think there's a lot about protecting the holiness that's developing in your children. And it's and it applies to teaching, like mutatis mutandis, because teaching is not, is not that glamorous a job. Our society doesn't have a whole lot of respect for teachers, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So what? Like, it's a hidden, it's another kind of dimension of the hidden life. I think of the Gospel of John, right? I have not lost any of those you sent to me. I think of all my students as someone the Lord has sent to me. And to do the, un, you could say, unglamorous work of working with them, both in class and in office hours, which sometimes seem to go on forever. <laughs> it's nothing you can brag about, but it's, I just have the conviction that something of deep abiding preciousness is, is growing there. Yeah, the fruits of your labors may not be seen in your lifetime or in their lifetime. It may not be until the eternal life that we see it's all really the fruits true. Of, of what we're doing. So as my last question then, what have been some of the tactics that you have used to pursue a holy life as it relates to your prayer or your relationships or your teaching? Yeah, well, I hate to talk about it too much, but these things have, have grown as my life has gone on, of course, but I, I am very, very attached to the rosary. I don't talk about it. Probably people wouldn't even know it, though I wear one. Mm-hmm. But I get up early to say the rosary, mm-hmm. and I say the rosary for my family. For all my kids and now for all my 17 grandchildren. Like, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I do it. 
Um, I get up for that reason early. And um, I also have become interested in and find the beauty in the seven sorrows of Mary devotion. The seven sorrows, which also is the patronal in Our Lady of Sorrows, Feast of the Holy Cross. But mm-hmm. you, know, you go through those seven sorrows and you think, wow, Mary was like greeted by the angel. And, and she must be thinking, wow, this is going to be like fantastic. And then, you know, then there's this prophecy of Simeon and there's, oh, the flight to Egypt. This is it doesn't seem like it's turning out to be like I, I thought maybe it would be. And then there's the loss of the boy Jesus in the temple. And then there's the way of the cross and being at the foot of the cross. And then Jesus is taken down from the cross. And then like the, the burial, it's like, now what? Like it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to. Mm. Like, But to still have all those sorrows and yet somehow persist. Doing that devotion has been very important to me because somehow... If she could persist, I can persist. And it also helps you understand the mystery of Christian faith more deeply because a fortiori to the Lord, like, this is what's happening to me? But he, to re- realize that he, like, he took that on for, for me, I don't know, these are the kinds of devotions that are important to me. Plus, daily mass is very important if I can go. Mm-hmm. Usually, once in a while, I can't. But like that is, you know, that's the center, the source and center I don't know. I feel fortified. Sometimes I don't feel anything, but somehow I, I know that I'm fortified anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Some of that hidden, hidden, those hidden things that are going on within our souls as well. Well, John, thank you for the time today, and thank you just for the ministry that you've given to Notre Dame and to the church over the course of your life and career, and we look forward to the things that you will continue to do here and through the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And just thanks for sharing so many personal aspects of your story as part of the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for being so patient and listening to all these stories. I appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. As always, we invite you to like the podcast, to share it, to rate it on Apple, iTunes if you enjoyed it, and to subscribe to our Faith Indie Daily Gospel Reflection at Faith sign up. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thanks for joining us, and God bless. Mm-hmm.